In this year's Hope Live series, we're looking at what it means to be peacemakers. And last week, Nate Dirks helped us appreciate that from Jesus' perspective, uh, peace is not just about the absence of conflict. It's the presence of abundant wholeness and well-being for all. That's what the Hebrew word shalom means. It's what the world looks like when the world is working right for everyone, everywhere, all the time. In our home, I tell my kids when one is bugging the other, I say, guys, it's only fun if everyone's having fun. It's kind of like that with shalom. It's only true peace if everyone's experiencing peace. Shalom is when everyone is thriving. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. That it's in cooperating and partnering with Jesus to create that kind of abundant wholeness and well-being for everyone that we experience God's blessing. Now, of course, we all want shalom, and yet we experience so little of it. I think most of us spend most of our lives feeling like we're not thriving in our relationship with God or at peace with, in our relationship with creation or with each other, whether friends, rivals, parents, siblings, spouses, kids, or even in our relationship with each other. So why is peace so elusive? And what's standing in our way of experiencing this true thriving, this true shalom? Well, it might not surprise you to learn that, uh, like it is today, uh, the challenge of experiencing true shalom was the big issue in Israel in Jesus' day. Now, Israel was a conquered nation, part of the Roman Empire, which ruled the world for about 400 years. And during the time of Jesus, they were in the midst of an era of unprecedented uh, economic prosperity and social stability, an era that they called Pax Romana. Pax Romana literally means Roman peace. You see, by this point in Rome's campaign to rule the world, they had become so powerful, so dominant, that there were no more wars left to fight because there were really no enemies left to oppose them. You know, they went for centuries without the, the ravages and volatility that come with being at constant war. It was a golden age for Rome. And yet historians tell us that the era known as Pax Romana was far from free of bloodshed and violence. Um, corrupt emperors ruled like tyrants, assassinating political opponents and stamping out even the slightest whiff of revolt with swift brutality. This kind of ruthless conquest led one conquered enemy to quip, Rome creates a desolation and calls it peace. And we experience this spirit of Pax Romana in our world today, and where some people believe that Israel will never experience peace until Palestine is destroyed, and others feel like, you know, it's actually Israel that needs to be taken down in order for Palestine to have peace. But it's not just in wars between nations, even in a relatively peace-loving nation like ours. Those on the political right feel like our country's doomed if they can't stamp out the influence of those on the left. And those on the left feel the same way about those on the right. In the business world, companies thrive by crushing their competitors, believing that there's not enough for everyone. We desire shalom in our relationships, and yet we so often seek our own happiness at the expense of others. And even in, you know, the broader church, our quest for theological and missional shalom has left us fragmented in thousands of different denominations spread across the world. 
and even in our one local church congregation, our desire to fight for what we think is right can so often leave us at odds with each other. We so desire peace, and yet, unfortunately, we so often create desolation. Well, back in Israel, in the about 100 years before Roman occupation, Israel was ruled by the Maccabees, a dynasty that sought to reestablish Israel's religious purity and political dominance in the world. Um, they saw themselves as God's chosen instrument to establish peace, order, and justice in human society, literally to create peace on earth. And yet in their quest for peace, um, they actually ended up creating a kind of Pax Roman of their own, a Pax Israeli, I guess, um, as they sought to defend and even expand their borders through military conquest. And their methods were actually quite brutal. In fact, uh, it's believed that the term Maccabee actually is Hebrew for hammerer or extinguisher. They wanted to have peace so badly that they were willing to hammer and extinguish anyone who got in their way. And in 63 BCE, when Jerusalem fell to Rome, Israel found itself on the wrong end of Pax Romana. The poverty, oppression, and cruelty that they experienced led to many small-scale revolts and, and several would-be messiahs rising up and leading uh, insurgent revolutions uh, or attempted uh, coups against Rome. Um, there were people like the Zealots, uh, who actually even one of Jesus' own disciples, Simon, was a Zealot. There were the Sicarii, who were literal cloak and dagger men, like trained assassins. And there were brigades of resistance fighters known as the Lestai. Now, the Lestai were like a Robin Hood-style band of thieves who sought to liberate Israel by liberating the Romans from their wealth. Um, the word Lestai is often translated insurrectionist, but more literally, it's translated bandits. Now, in Israel, the Lestai were like hometown heroes, but the Romans saw them as violent criminals. They were in the habit of crucifying them, both to stamp out the revolts and to send a message to any future would-be messiahs. This was a time in the world when peace kind of belonged to whoever had the most power. And so peacemaking was really actually all about power brokering. Well, this is the landscape into which Jesus emerges. Speaking of a, a new kind of kingdom, one that disrupts and disarms the systems and structures of empire, but not by force and violence, by acts of selfless love. Where when mistreated, his followers respond with joy. When wronged, they show mercy. When wronged repeatedly, they forgive all the more. When forcibly enslaved, we gladly and willingly serve as an act of peaceful resistance, repaying evil with good, curses with blessing, uh, cruelty with kindness, where we pray for and love those who would try to make themselves our enemies. And even Jesus modeled and demonstrated this kind of idea, this lifestyle that would rather die for his enemies than kill them. Now, this is not what Israel was hoping for from their Messiah. And it's actually why the Jewish leaders began to quickly hate Jesus and fear his influence over the people. You know, his ideas were a dangerous threat to their brand of peace. They had no interest in turning the other cheek, 
They wanted to shake off the shackles of Roman oppression and stand with sword in hand over their captors. Now, they were looking for a Messiah who would lead them in a political and military revolution and reestablish Israel's dominance in the world. Not some homeless peasant carpenter slash rabbi spreading nonsense about peace. Jesus was not a revolution that they were interested in, and so they decided to get rid of him. But because they couldn't sentence anyone to death on their own, they filed some trumped-up charges against him and handed him over to the Roman governor of the province, a man named Pontius Pilate, believing that the, the merciless machinery of Rome would make short work of Jesus. Now, Pontius Pilate was no stranger to executing people, uh, but having one handed to him by his own people, well, that was a bit unusual. The charges against Jesus were clear. Uh, he claimed to be Israel's true king, a charge which, if true, represented a, a mutinous rebellion against Rome and was punishable by death. But Pilate saw something different in Jesus. I mean, he was certainly a revolutionary figure, but he seemed to have no political ambition, and he was anything but violent. I mean, you'd almost call him meek. As Pilate questions him about the charges against him, and Jesus doesn't even really argue or, or offer a whole lot of a defense. Um, when Pilate asks him if he is in fact a king, Jesus simply replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is of another place. Jesus says that his kingdom is not on the same level as the Roman Empire. Uh, it's almost like an alternate reality governed by a whole different set of values. And if, as he points out, if his kingdom actually were trying to occupy the same space as Rome or wield the same kind of power as Rome, well, then his servants would be soldiers. See, fighting and forcing your way is just standard operating procedure in matters of empire, but it just doesn't work that way in Jesus' kingdom. And he'd proven it. Uh, just 24 hours earlier, he'd been in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, praying submissively, not my will, but yours be done. And while that prayer was still hanging in the air, a group of people uh, influenced heavily by one of the chief priests uh, showed up to try to take Jesus down. It says in Matthew 26 that while he was still speaking, Judas one of the 12 arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come at me with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Do you catch that word? Do you, do you remember we were talking about that? That word literally is listai. And the question Jesus is asking here is kind of ridiculous. I mean, nobody there was confusing Jesus with uh, one of the Lestai bandits who rob and kill to get what they want. You know, but their, their minds were so clouded by this idea of Pax Romana, and maybe because when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, they, they came at Jesus expecting a fight, and they were prepared to take him down by force if necessary. A, a perfectly reasonable compromise in the name of peace. And they almost got what they wanted. Uh, Matthew tells us that uh, one of Jesus' disciples, when one of the soldiers stepped in to physically seize Jesus, um, says one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, 
drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Once again, we see the spirit of Pax Romana rearing its ugly head, even among Jesus' closest followers. And as Jesus steps forward to mend and restore the soldier's ear, he says to his disciple, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Jesus says, there's no place for violence in my kingdom. Violence is never a pathway to peace. It makes no more sense than me yelling at my kids to stop screaming. It just doesn't make sense. Violence only begets violence. You can't take freedom by force. Uh, even Nietzsche said that whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. Jesus hadn't come to tear down an empire by force, but to build up a kingdom through merciful, kind and gentle, loving, gracious, forgiving, peacemaking. Because only peacemaking makes peace. Pilate knew that Jesus was no Lestai bandit. And he had no intentions of executing him. I mean, it might have been his conscience, or maybe he was just trying to send a message to the Jewish leaders that he wasn't going to be a pawn in their religious games. But he decided to turn the decision over to the people. Matthew goes on to tell us that um, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. And what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they all answered Crucify him. I mean, what is going on here? I, I remember when I heard this story as a kid wondering what insanity has come over these people that they'd rather have the murderous Barabbas roaming the streets again as a free man rather than Jesus. I mean, what are we missing? Well, as it turns out, something, depending on which translation you read, uh, what we're missing is Barabbas's real name. Now, I understand that the early translators omitted it to avoid confusion, but in the original manuscripts, Barabbas' real name was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Now, Jesus is a name that means Savior or the one who saves. And Barabbas, Bar Abba, means son of his father. Jesus Barabbas was a would-be Messiah figure, a liberator, a savior, just like his father before him. Freedom fighting was like a family business for the Barabbases. And actually in the Gospel of John, we get this one extra bit of commentary in this story. Uh, as John is describing how the crowds were shouting to release Barabbas, he adds parenthetically, now Barabbas was a bandit. Barabbas was a lestai. He was about to be executed because, like so many who had come before him, he was a freedom fighter for peace, a messianic figure 
for Israel, who by any means necessary was trying to restore shalom in Israel. Barabbas wasn't just some unhinged, mangy serial killer killing at random. His role in history is not just some literary foil or contrast to the you know, pure innocence of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus, who Matthew says was called the Messiah or the Christ, represent two different kinds of saviors, two different types of messiahs. They embody two contrasting and incompatible pathways to peace. One, uh, the ends justify the means at all cost kind of peacemaking. And the other, I'd rather die for you than kill you kind of peacemaking. And the crowds who shouted to condemn Jesus and liberate Barabbas, well, they weren't insane. They weren't just experiencing some kind of collective delusion or under group hypnosis, as some have suggested. They were clear-eyed in their choice. They wanted Jesus Barabbas. They weren't interested in the peaceful revolution of Jesus. They were looking for a Messiah, a leader who would lead them into battle, into a fight, into bloody insurrection. They wanted militants, not meekness. They were interested in power, not poverty of spirit. They were looking for a mutiny, not mercy. They hungered and thirsted, not for righteousness, but for revenge. They wanted an uprising, not a resurrection. They wanted desolation in the name of peace. Now, it's easy to look down our noses at them, but I think that there is something in each of us that out of a genuine desire to experience the shalom of Jesus, chooses Barabbas instead. I think we suspect that the way of Jesus is just a little too soft, a little too meek and mild, a little too weak and ineffectual to get the job done. And so we resort to more violent means to achieving peace. I mean, we're not brandishing swords or glorifying criminal behavior, but we choose Barabbas in more subtle ways. I think I choose Barabbas every time I'm so sure I'm right that I dominate a conversation. I think I choose Barabbas every time I access the uh, levers of power that I have available to me to get my way rather than praying with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. I think I choose Barabbas every time I speak negatively about somebody to try to shape the narrative. I think I choose Barabbas every time I give in to that instinct to not listen, to overreact, or to lead with defensiveness. I think we choose Barabbas every time we cut the ear off of anyone who's trying to do things a little differently than we would do them. And we justify not turning the other cheek or not going the extra mile, not loving and praying for our enemies. We choose Brabus every time we withhold forgiveness and write somebody off as if they're incapable of change. Now, I'm not talking about situations where there's been abuse or maybe an imminent threat of violence. Um, there are exceptions to this, but I'm talking about in general the regular relationships that we are engaging in. We choose Barabbas when we secretly root for someone's downfall or believe the worst about them, or when we aren't going to apologize until they do first. We choose Barabbas when we're not going to the family reunion if she's going to be there, 
or leave him out of the will or off the guest list until he grovels for forgiveness. I think we choose Brabus in some more passive aggressive ways like gossip or the silent treatment, bullying and intimidation threats, ghosting, canceling people. And we do these things because we think that they will bring us peace, but all they achieve is more desolation, a, a, another Pax Romana. And peace eludes us because we just fail to recognize that peace is not an outcome we can achieve by any means necessary. As pastor and author Brian Zond says, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Or said differently, only peacemaking makes peace. Unless we're willing to work for the shalom in someone else's life, we're never going to experience it for ourselves. So what about you? In what ways have you been seeking shalom at the expense of others? And what would it look like to seek and make peace, true shalom, that kind of abundant wholeness and well-being for the others in your life? What would it look like for us as a community to join Jesus in this important work of peacemaking? You know, to uh, refuse and reject Pax Romana in all its forms, to, to not choose Brabus, but rather to kneel at the feet of our Savior, the Prince of Peace, to lay down our weapons and our arguments, our desire to manipulate, our need to hyper-control the outcomes, and lay down uh, our swords and beat them into plowshares, to pray with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. To do unto the other as you'd have them do unto you. This is the way of Jesus, the way of peace. And it's a narrow way and few are those who find it. But why not us? Why not us? Why not trust and follow the counterintuitive way of Jesus and devote ourselves to the things that make for peace? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the way that you have made peace with us at the cross, that you held nothing back, that you have forgiven so freely. And I pray that we would learn to extend that same mercy and grace to forgive, to be healers, to be peacemakers, and to recognize that there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Jesus, we uh, repent of the ways we've chosen Barabbas, and we choose you, Jesus, our Christ, our Messiah our peacemaker. Amen.